take your Bibles now and turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. First Peter is a book of the Bible, to state the obvious. We need to understand that it was a letter. It's not a book that was written by a scholar sitting in an ivory tower somewhere and then published by a publisher and stuck in a library. It is a letter written by a man who has experience and sent not just to one local church, but likely to many local churches. You look at verse 2 of First Peter chapter 1, and you'll see a list of cities and areas in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and you'll, the, the assumption is that this letter was being circulated to some number of churches in, in those areas. We saw last week this book was written by the Apostle Peter. And Peter is writing this book most likely from the city of Rome. In chapter 5, verse 13, he calls it Babylon. But he's not using that name literally at that point. He's not writing from the city of Babylon. He's writing from the city of Rome, where he, is, where he would later be executed for his faith. He uses the word Babylon as code, I suspect, to avoid drawing attention to the church in Rome. Because that is where the persecution was at that point, the most severe in the empire. But in truth, that name Babylon is also an accurate description of the city of Rome at that time in its character and of the whole Roman Empire. The name Babylon is used in the Bible to describe moral debauchery and the resistance of God and the mistreatment of his people. And so as persecution of Christians was on the rise throughout the Roman Empire and the floodgates were soon going to be opened, Peter knows that things are going to get worse for believers in a very short time. And as he now an old man, looks back over his own life, and as he remembers the lessons that he's learned, he writes a letter of pastoral encouragement, of pastoral instruction to believers to call them to hold fast to their steadfast hope, even as they are increasingly aware that they're living in a foreign land. And Peter states his purpose in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, the things that he's writing about. Stand firm in it, he says. In other words, he writes to remind Christians of the most important thing, the true grace of God, so that we would understand it and stand firm in it even if we face life-threatening trouble in this world? Do you believe that it is possible to stand fast and be unmoved and joyful and faithful to your faith, to your Christian belief, to your relationship with Christ, even in the face of life-threatening circumstances? Yes, it's possible. Last week we, be we began our study of this letter by looking at just the first two verses. These first two verses are just an opening greeting to the book. But they are packed with divine truth. They are packed with significance. They lay the foundation on which the rest of this book stands. Peter's book is a call to steadfast hope in a foreign land. But get this, it's not a call to go find it. It's a reminder that if you are in Christ, you already have it. So we as Christians are not on a journey, a quest to find hope. 
in this world. We already have it. We just need to be reminded to remember it and to stand firm in it. And that is the whole basis of what Peter is writing. And the whole basis for the hope that we have in Christ is not our circumstances. It's not our intellect. The whole basis for our hope is the truth of who we are before God in Christ Jesus. So, even as Peter opens this letter, he jumps right into the doctrine. He jumps right into the theology. In the first two verses, in his opening greeting, he greets these persecuted saints with the most encouraging reminder and the most stabilizing truth. You are chosen by God the Father. You are purified by God the Son. You are sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. And you are held fast by His all-powerful grace and peace. This really is the crux of the whole matter. If anyone is going to have peace and hope in this world, any true stability in this life, he must be rightly related to God through Jesus Christ. Any other security... Any other hope is not true hope, and it will not last. That is why, before getting into any instructions, before offering any commands, Peter reminds his readers of their relationship with God. That is the most important thing. With that, we have unshakable hope. Without it, nothing else matters. So, right at the very beginning, right from the very beginning of this letter, you must ask yourself a question. Where do I stand with God? You cannot move any further until you can answer that question biblically. And I ask you, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed Him as your Lord and Savior? If you have not, then I urge you Pay attention today and find out what salvation is. And I urge you today to repent and believe the gospel. To call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who do will be saved. Tomorrow, my friends, may be too late. Today is the day. And Christians, if you are in Christ, Peter's encouragement and his instruction are for you. He's going to teach us how to live in steadfast and hopeful lives in the midst of a sinful world. But I've been struck with something this week as I've thought about it. Any of you actually do your homework last week and read the book of 1 Peter? Some of you? Okay, some of you did. The rest of you, shame on you. That's your assignment today. But you only get half credit now. I'm struck by something in 1 Peter how every day his instruction is. See, we think that, oh no, persecution is coming. I have to hunker down. I have to change. I have to do something different, something more drastic now in order to weather the storm. And Peter's saying, no, your life is about to get very difficult. I know that. Here's how you as Christians need to live. Keep living faithfully just as you did before you suffered. He teaches us how to be good employees. He teaches us how to be good husbands and wives. He teaches us how to love one another. He teaches us how to pursue holiness. All the things that we should be doing now. And if we do them now, then we are prepared for when suffering. But before he gets to all of those specifics, he comes back and he reminds us of the source of it all, the foundation of it all, the fountain from which all of that flows. You see, I can teach you how to be a good employee, but without this foundation, it's just legalism. It's just empty works. You must have the foundation first, and that is where Peter starts. He highlights our living hope through salvation by faith through the gospel that is supplied by God the Father, 
that is accomplished in Christ the Son and is applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So this is the thrust of the next section of 1 Peter before he ever gets to the specific instruction. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, Peter essentially bursts into a song of praise for who God is and for what he has done in the lives of his people. Simply mentioning it in the greeting is not enough. He overflows with praise, just like the Apostle Paul does at the end of Romans 11, when after laying this theological foundation, he just cries out, you know, oh, the depth, the riches, for of him and through him and to him are all things. Peter does the same thing right here. And in verses 3 through 5, which is our text for today, Peter highlights the new birth. He highlights the living hope and the eternal inheritance that belongs to every Christian. And then in verses 6 to 12, he's going to explain on that foundation why our suffering in this world is, get this, a good thing. He's laying the foundation first. So today we're looking at verses 3 through 5, and we are rejoicing in the living hope that God has given us through Jesus Christ. We're looking at verses 3 through 5, but I want us to read 3 through 7 right now as, as we begin. So follow along with me as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The thing we need most, even in the darkest moments of our lives, is to lift our eyes to God, to recognize who He is as the sovereign, all-powerful, merciful, and good God. Look at the Psalms. That's exactly what the psalmists do in their darkest moments. They work themselves to lifting their eyes to who God is. And that is what Peter does for us here in these verses, leading us to praise God for the steadfast hope he has given to us. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to remember and I want us to rejoice. That's it. But that's a lot. So I want us to notice, first of all, the call to praise. Talking about worshiping God for the steadfast hope that he has given. And we begin with the call to praise him. We read in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word blessed comes from a Greek word that means to speak well of. We get the English word eulogy from it. You know what a eulogy is, right? When it refers to God, it means praise on the basis of his character and his works. It means, it means to remember and to, to speak of who he is and what he's done. And the phrase, blessed be, is a call for us to do just that. There are two angles to this, two different ways we can look at it, and both of them are true. On the one hand, this phrase means that God is blessed. It's, a, it's an acknowledgement of a truth that is already in place and something that is already happening. God is blessed, and He is praised, and He is worshipped for who He is and what He has done. But then the other aspect of it is a call to join in to that worship. You, may God be blessed by you for who he is and for what he has done. Both of those are at play here. And the idea here is to express praise and thanks to God directly 
And it also means to proclaim to others who he is and what he has done. What you know and what you believe about God. You know, that is exactly what we do when we sing. That's why the words of the song are important. That's why I'm thankful Tom pointed us to the truth of what we're singing. That's more important than the tune we use to sing it, right? When we sing, we are lifting our voices directly to God, proclaiming to Him, confessing to Him what we believe to be true about Him, what He has done. But we're also encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're proclaiming in the hearing of one another together what we believe about God so that those who need to respond to that truth will hear it and respond and be encouraged. But it's not just when we sing. We ought to be doing that in our speech toward others. We ought to be doing it in our actions, not just in a worship service, but every day of our lives, everywhere we go. That in everything that we think and say and do, we overflow with praise and thanksgiving and wonder at our God and what He has done for us. That is the natural response of one who has a true understanding of all this. One who has truly understood the gospel. One who has truly received the grace of God. The only, there is only one natural, reasonable response. It's praise. Thanking Him and proclaiming Him to others. So, the first and most foundational message Peter has for Christians who are suffering is this. Lift your eyes. Lift your minds. Lift your hearts to the Lord. Remember that He is sovereign. He is all-powerful, and He is good. And He has an eternal purpose for everything that comes into your life. And get this, thank Him for even the trials. We don't have to like them. He's not asking us to like them. But we can rejoice and worship the Lord in them. Because we know that He will use them for His good purpose in our lives. May His praise be in our hearts at all times, and may his praise be on our lips toward all peoples. That brings us to notice, secondly, not just the call to praise, but the object of praise. We're still at the beginning of verse 3, and you've noticed it already, I'm sure. Blessed be who? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our praise has an object. It has content. This isn't just a good feeling. The world can do that. This isn't just a sense of gratitude directed to nothing in particular. This is praise that has an object. And it's not just thankfulness to some concept of God or to just any God out there, whatever we think he, she, or it is. This is, as one commentator called it, a concentrated confession. That is, a specific expression of praise to a specific person for a specific reason. That is what true Christian praise really is. Thanking God, proclaiming His greatness according to the truth. So, once again, theology, doctrine, the revelation of God's Word is what drives our worship. It drives our attitudes. It drives our daily living. We're not just wandering through life living according to how we feel from one day to the next. We're not just generally thankful people. No, we are thankful worshipers of a specific God for a specific reason. 
And the object of the Christian's praise is defined here specifically. The God, it says. That is, the one true God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That makes it pretty specific, doesn't it? This is not Allah. Buddha doesn't factor in here. And this is not the culturally relevant God of our own creation, of our own imagination. This is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is revealed in the Old Testament as Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am, who is the creator of heaven and earth, who sovereignly governs all things, who punishes sin, yet who is merciful and gracious, who sets his love on whom he will. And this God is furthermore revealed in the New Testament through his son, Jesus Christ. So my question for you today is not, do you believe in God? And are you thankful? My question is, which God do you believe in? Do you believe in this God? And are you thankful to him for the things he has revealed to you and done for you? In the New Testament, he's revealed through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says, I and the Father are one. He also says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And so even here, in praising God the Father, we're brought into a, a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in bringing our Lord Jesus Christ into the picture with reference to who God is, we see our salvation as part of the conversation. That's why we say we praise God for who He is and what He has done. And this is the main emphasis of the passage. Jesus is the physical revelation of God to men. He is God in human flesh, equal with God the Father. And He is the sovereign creator and ruler and savior of the world. And the title that is used for Him here is intentional and significant in every word. First, he is the Lord. That's a title that refers to his authority, to his rulership and his sovereignty. Second, he is Jesus. That is his earthly name. The name means Yahweh saves. It helps us to understand that he is the Savior. And that word Christ is the Greek version of the Old Testament word Messiah the Chosen One, who was sent by God the Father to accomplish a specific mission. So when Jesus says that He and the Father are one, they're not just one in essence, they are one in mission. You cannot worship one without the other. So who is the object of our praise? It is no one less than God, the Almighty Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ, the Sovereign Master over all things, the Anointed Savior of His people. And when we consider all of this, when we consider that the One whose presence we sit in this morning is this God, how can we approach worship casually? How can we approach worship unprepared? How can we sing half-heartedly? How can we take God's word lightly and read it so seldomly? How can we live so indifferently to God's commands and His design and His purpose? Truly, when we consider who God truly is, in all that He has done for us, there is only one reasonable response and everything else falls short. The only reasonable response is to fall at His feet in total praise and heartfelt worship and then to rise up and live with every ounce of our being to know Him and to serve Him and to please Him. 
There is no greater purpose in life. There is no more fulfilling purpose in life. There is no more stable way to live than this. That brings us thirdly to consider the reason for praise. The reason for praise. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. At every moment of our lives, even in our darkest moments, we said what we need most is to remember who God is, to remember what He has done, and to praise Him for it. What does that look like on practical day-to-day living? Well, that's what Peter's going to cover through the rest of his epistle here. Now, we've already considered who he is, but what I want us to consider now is what he has done for us. And there, there is really one overall reason that we're called to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's this. It is for our salvation. For our salvation. That was spelled out in verse 2. We are chosen by God the Father, purified by the Son, sanctified by the Spirit, held secure in His grace and peace. But now verses 3 through 5 go a little bit deeper. They break our salvation apart a little bit and look at it in more detail. Peter gives us four specifics about our salvation that call for praise here. First of all, in the middle of verse 3, we see that our salvation is according to His great mercy. Now, Here's a Bible study tip for you. When we're studying Scripture, prepositions are important. And I know I just put myself into the category of a grammar nerd. Trust me, I'm not. Okay, I'm I'm not a grammar nerd. But the prepositions are important. You say, well, what's a preposition? Okay. Look throughout verses 3 through 5, and you're going to see certain words that help give some direction to every phrase in the text, according to his great mercy, through the resurrection, to an inheritance, by God's power, through faith. You see that? Anytime you're reading a passage of scripture, especially in the epistles, those preposition words are incredibly important because they help show how one phrase relates to the other, what causes what, which came first, and what the results are intended to be, what the effect was, and where this is all going. And here, we learn that our salvation from beginning to end is all according to, or in keeping with, or by way of, His great mercy. The word mercy has the idea of showing favor to those who are pitiable or pitiful. It assumes a great need on the part of the recipient. And it assumes the ability to adequately meet that need on the part of the giver. In this case, the point is that on our own, we are all, by nature, in need of mercy. And at that, great mercy, overflowing mercy. You see, Scripture makes it clear that by nature, from the beginning, we are all sinners. We are alienated from God. We are condemned to eternal judgment. Indeed, according to the Apostle Paul, we saw this on Wednesday night as we looked at Ephesians 2. We are dead in trespasses and sins. That's a huge problem. This isn't you have a little bit of rust on your car and it needs to be buffed out. This is you are dead. What does dead mean? It means dead. It doesn't mean sick. It means dead. This is absolute hopelessness and helplessness. You see, our great problem is not that we are poor and we need to be made rich. Our great problem is not that we are alone and we need community. Our great problem is not that we are injured and need to be healed, nor that we are sick and need to be made well, nor that we are ignorant and need to be enlightened. Our problem is that we are dead and we need to be made alive. 
And that is something we just cannot do for ourselves. Nor can anyone else in this world do it for us because they're dead too. On our own, spiritually, we are utterly lost and helpless. Were it up to us, we could never be saved. We would have no hope. But here we read of mercy. Great mercy. The mercy of God who looked upon us in our helpless need and acted with power enough to meet that desperate need. Again, Paul says it in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Only God can do that. Only God can raise the dead. We know that, right? But here's the question. Why would he want to? Right? What is it about us that would make him want to raise us from the dead? And the answer is... Nothing! Why did he do it? Well, you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, and, God, and Paul tells us exactly why God did it, to the praise of his glorious grace. That his grace and mercy would be magnified. That's exactly what's going on here. There's nothing worthy in us, but God saved us according to his great mercy, that his mercy would be magnified. Who is our God? Our God is a God of mercy and compassion. It is in his nature to save sinners. And not one of those who have tasted of his mercy will be lost. But we need to understand that any hope we have, the salvation we have received, is not of our own doing, it's not of our own earning. It is only by his mercy. But that's just what makes the story so good. Because anything we might come up with is helpless and unstable Anything God offers is unshakable. This is great mercy. And then according to that great mercy, we read at the end of verse 3 that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, don't, don't overlook that first phrase. He has caused. It's not our work. It is not our idea and it is not our initiative that brings about our salvation and hope. We were dead. There was no life in us. Any hope, any faith, any movement toward salvation on our part has been caused. It has been initiated by God himself. And praise God it is, because if it were up to us, we'd never make it. We'd never even start. But what did he cause? What did God initiate? The text tells us, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. I love that phrase, born again. We need to hear it more often. We need to talk about it more, don't we? That phrase, born again, speaks of a completely new life, a complete change of status, a completely new nature and situation. Jesus explains it in John 3 to Nicodemus in the middle of the night. You know that story, right? Many of you do. That just as we were born physically into this world, so we must be born again spiritually into the kingdom of God. No amount of self-help, no amount of a change of habits is enough to raise a spiritually dead soul to spiritual life. Only God can do that. We must be born again. We must become a new creation. And that phrase, born again, speaks of new life. It speaks of the life of God himself put into us, raising us from the spiritual grave. And God gives it to us by his mercy. And then Peter continues that we are born again to a living hope. What is the nature of our new life by God's mercy? It is one of living hope. 
where once we were hopeless, now we have been brought by God into a life of hope. And in Scripture, Tom nailed it this morning. He hit the nail on the head. When this word hope is used, it doesn't mean wishful thinking. It's not like so many of our hopes and dreams that we have in this world. Right? How many of you have a childhood hope or dream that did not come to pass? Kids, that's not to discourage you. That's to encourage you that God leads exactly where you need to go. So don't be afraid to hope and dream. But that's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about wishful thinking and dreaming and just hoping that maybe things will work out the way we would like them to work out. That's not what biblical hope is. In Scripture, hope is a certainty. It is a confident assurance regarding the future. It is an expectation of future events that will come to pass on the promise of God Himself who cannot lie and cannot be wrong. So we read that our hope is a living hope. It's not a dead or dying hope like the hopes of this world. It is a living hope established on the life of God himself. And so it is so certain that it is as good as done. So much so that in Scripture, when we read about our future hope, we read about it as if it's a past event that's already occurred. That's how certain it is. And how was that hope accomplished? Peter tells us in the next phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just as Jesus died and rose again, and that really is indisputable, so your eternal hope is secure. Your eternal hope is as secure as the resurrection is true. Why? Why is our hope so secure? Because it does not depend on our worthiness or power. It does not rest in this world as just another wishful thought, but it is the gift of God Himself, given by His mercy unto eternal life through the resurrection of His Son, from the grave. Therefore, even death itself cannot separate us from the hope that we have in Him. In Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we are rescued out of the realm of the hopeless, and we are transferred into the realm of eternal hope. Now, next. We praise God for His mercy. We praise Him for the living hope that we have in Christ. And with that, we also praise Him for our heavenly inheritance. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This is looking ahead. This is realizing that most, much, most of our salvation is still to be experienced in the future. The idea of an inheritance here is something that is set aside and intended to be passed down at the proper time. We have seen that by God's mercy we have been born again into a living hope, and that gives us a whole new perspective and approach to the life we live right here and right now. But this idea of an inheritance points our attention to something even greater, because it is an inheritance in heaven. Now, what is that inheritance? Please do not sit back and think, ching, ching. <laughs> Don't think about piles of money, don't think about mansions. We won't need those things there. In fact, don't think of anything material as we do in this world because those things won't matter to us there like they do here. 
What is the, the eternal inheritance? Think of it this way. Think of the culmination of your salvation. Think of seeing Jesus face to face. And I mean, really think about that. Imagine yourself standing in front of him this morning and hearing those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And what comes next? Enter into the joy of your Lord. Can you imagine that? Think about it. Does that not make the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit? Does it not make you wish that this creaky roof would just blow off and we would see him coming again, right? Maybe that's what you need to think of next time the wind blows and this roof creaks. Think of the complete removal of sin and all of its effects. Think of the perfect restoration of all things. All of that. And more than we can imagine is part of our, our heavenly inheritance in Christ. And unlike anything in this world, we are told that this inheritance is imperishable. Nothing in this world is imperishable. We don't even know exactly what that means, do we? Not by experience, we don't. Even the most imperishable things perish eventually. Imperishable means it cannot rust, it cannot decay, and it cannot lose its value in any way. Undefiled, that means that it is untouched by evil. It cannot be spoiled. It cannot be corrupted. It cannot be perverted. It is unfading. That means it cannot be reduced in any way. And get this, it will never cease to satisfy to the fullest. Again, we don't know what that's like in this world. Even the most joyful, fulfilling things we can experience in this world fade eventually, right? Just think about Christmas presents. How many of you are still running circles around your living room today for the Christmas presents you received two months ago? None of you are. Our inheritance in heaven cannot be reduced and it will never cease to satisfy and delight us to the fullest. And then we're told also that it is kept in heaven for us. That means it is guarded. And where is it guarded? Not behind a rickety fence in some guy's backyard. It is guarded in heaven itself, the safest possible place. This is the treasure that Jesus calls us to pursue in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Love the way one preacher put it. Pursue the treasure that rust can't destroy and death can't take away. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you this, where is your heart today? Where are you storing up? Where are you stockpiling your treasure? Where are you spending your time and your energy and your income? And what are you seeking to accomplish with your life and your resources is it safe? Really? Is it secure? Is it of eternal value? You see, this is the difference between the world and the Christian. This is the difference between the sorrows of this world and the joy of the Lord. Imagine with me, if you will, what would your life look like? And what could you accomplish if your earthly happiness was rooted in this hope alone? In this inheritance, this treasure that rust can't destroy and death can't take away. It's an inheritance that is beyond compare 
to anything that we see in this world. Now, as we consider our heavenly inheritance, there is an important implication here. The implication is that we will be around to enjoy it. Right? If we weren't, it's worthless to us. So the implication is that we will be around to enjoy it. And with that, this promise of a heavenly inheritance is also a promise of preservation until that day. And you know what? We see that in verse 5. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's not just your inheritance that's being guarded until the end of time. It's you who are being guarded until the end of time. And once again, we're reminded that all of this is carried along by God's power, not our own. Just as our salvation does not depend on our power, so our preservation does not depend on our power, but on God's alone. We do not hope in ourselves. We lift our eyes to the sovereign God. And by His power, we are being guarded through faith. That is, we are being kept faithful through the work of His Spirit in us. That speaks of our continual Christian life, and it speaks of our progressive spiritual growth. We are being preserved, we are being protected, we are being developed, and we are growing spiritually all the way up until that day. Yes, we may have some bad days. I'll bet some of you had some bad days this week. I had bad days this week. But if we are kept by God's power alone, then we cannot do anything to forfeit our salvation or our eternal inheritance. We are preserved for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, you might look at that and say, wait a minute, that's future. Yes, a salvation ready to be revealed when Jesus returns and we see his face. But wait a minute. I thought I was saved already. Am I still waiting to be saved? The answer, yes to both. You have been saved. You know, there are three aspects to our salvation. Three angles that we can look at it. Past, present, future. We have been saved. Yes. At the moment of conversion, we have been saved. You could actually back up and say we've been saved from before the foundation of the world, but I don't want to get us confused. Conversion happened when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, when we repented of our sins. But then we are being saved throughout the course of our lives. That's what we call sanctification, spiritual growth and godliness. And then in the future, we will be saved. We call that glorification. That is when we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. So in the past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we're being saved continually from the power of sin. In the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin itself. As the Apostle Paul so beautifully writes in Romans 8, for those whom he foreknew, that's eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past, present, future. Salvation from beginning to end. The same God who saves us by his power sanctifies us by His power, preserves us by His power, and will one day glorify us by His power. He has yet to say anything about your troubles, doesn't He? If we'll grasp this, He doesn't really need to, does He? We already know where this is going. We already know where our focus ought to be. And when we grasp this, 
It doesn't make our troubles go away. Don't ever think that being a Christian means your life's going to be easy. No, in some ways it's going to be harder. And you need to count the cost. However, understanding a truth like this puts all those troubles in their proper place and keeps our focus where it needs to be. So my question is this. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? This passage is all about steadfast hope and joyful encouragement to those who belong to God. So my question is, do you belong to God? Have you received this mercy? Do you have this hope? Do you have this inheritance and this promise of divine preservation? All of this only belongs to those who have repented of their sin and who have found salvation in the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior and Lord. And so I urge you, if you've never come to this point, turn today. Put your faith in this Savior. There is nothing in this world you can live for that outshines this. That gives you more hope than this. Everything else is fake. It won't last. In fact, it will condemn you. But if you look to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you turn your heart away from the empty pleasures and promises of this world and, and come to Him as your Lord, you will receive eternal life. You will know steadfast hope. Christians, remember this. Remember your salvation and rejoice in everything today. Praise God at all times. Whatever else you face in this life, these things are constant and sure. You have received God's mercy. You have been born again to a living hope an eternal inheritance, and a lifelong preservation. You are being held fast by God's all-powerful hand. So Christian, hope in God. As the psalmist implores us, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.